And no, I, no one gave me a hard time because they already knew I was the demo man. Whatever I said, it was law. John Lapo grew up near Madison and Central on Chicago's west side. He was a street kid, with all the brotherhood and mischief that implies. He was in and out of trouble with the law, not on a felony level, but serious enough, he says, to make him ineligible for the draft. It's the late 60s, and John Lapo, who is best known by his nickname Riz, is looking for direction in life. A good friend gets drafted, and Riz decides, contrary to the advice of other companions, to enlist. His army training turns Riz into a demolitions expert. He is a member of the 173rd Airborne, known as the Herd. In Vietnam, his experience as a demo man has him traveling with different units, and he becomes for a time a tunnel rat with the dangerous job of exploring and clearing elaborate underground caverns dug out and fortified by the Viet Cong. Riz is a Purple Heart veteran who came home deeply scarred by what he witnessed. He still lives with that trauma today, but has found strength and purpose by living and giving in the present. Let's begin with uh, going back to the Austin neighborhood. All right, it's not Austin, it's Madison and Central. Okay, Madison and Central. But that's Austin, yeah. That, we went to Austin High School, so that was our turf. All right, that's a tough neighborhood, right? You had to be kind of tough? Yeah, if you got out of line, if you weren't one of the guys, if you didn't belong to the, you know, our corner, MCs, if you didn't play ball or, you know. I mean, the Greeks used to come from Harrison and Lotus, which was one of our allies. We used to play ball against them in Taylor Street, all different neighborhoods. It was great. I mean, it was and then sometimes in the suburbs, like one time Berwin and Frank Bond's dance, they asked us to come over and be like security because this guy Herbie the Rat from Melrose Park and these guys have been busting all the dances. Well, we went there and we took care of Herbie the Rat and everybody. And it was all peaceful, you know. Mm-hmm. We, we didn't start no trouble, but we finished a lot. You were a street smart kid. You learned the hard way. You I had, had to be. You had good friends. Um, Not at first. No, but... You had to make a reputation. Kind of a tough beginning. Right. Right? Because every, every neighborhood we moved, I was the oldest of three, then four. So I had to look out for my brother and sister. Mm-hmm. So I'm the one that had to say, hey, don't mess with my brother and sister. And we bring you back to when you enlisted. Your friend... Duffy, yeah. Decides he wants to go in. No, he got drafted. He got drafted? Right. I was one Y, because I had a police record. Okay. For loitering or something like that. It wasn't a felony, but it was, you know. Why, why did you why did you decide to enlist then? What was it that drove you? I mean, this is Cause it was April Vietnam. 69. It was, I mean, this is after 10. No, no, it was 68. 68? Yeah, May of 68. Okay. May 15th. Okay, May 15th, 68. Tet Offensive is over with, and we realize what's going on over there. Well, because Duffy got drafted. Your friend got dra- drafted, so... I went in with him. I got in on a two-year RA, where he was a two-year U.S. So we made you make out this dream sheet. They ask you when you first get in the Army, under orientation, what do you want to do? So Duffy, he's airborne, infantry, armor, Vietnam, and all that. Me, I want to get stationed right here at Fort Pershing on 35th, right here. So I put down all that stuff. Now, while we were in, in, in orientation that week, 
We took tests and all that, and got your hair cut. And I got the picture of my hair cut, nice clothes with a bald head. And uh, this uh, sergeant come up to me, he says, uh, are you interested in going to LOC? I said, what's LOC? He says, leader candidate school, you'd be a squad leader, and basic, maybe a, a platoon sergeant. You want to do no KP, no guard duty. You'll be, I says, yeah, okay. So I was there for two weeks. So in that two weeks, the way they made, I made commander, captain of the whole, 200 guys, I scored 427 on a PT test. And I learned a lot of stuff, and I went through basic, and I was a squad leader, AIT, I was a squad leader. So I came home, was home for two, two weeks, three weeks, and I went to Germany in January. Got there, and I said, oh, man, I was in Frankfurt. So I was just in regular fatigue, just sweeping floors and this and that. And while you're in Germany, you discover that there's some under-the-table stuff going on with military supplies. And all these guys, this first sergeant, he got knocked out of the iron for selling you know, our food to, in the black market. What were they doing? What were... They would take the foods that were shipped for us with the cooks, real good, the good food, and half, we would take, he'd take our first sergeant and a couple other people would take it and have it go to the black market and sell it to them. And this was going on for years, and mm. no one said nothing mm -hmm. until I found out. Until you know, you messed with me. So you blew the whistle. Well, not only myself, but everybody right. in the company. I mean, Alpha came over and told us stories about this guy and this and that, and they had a whole list, you know. Okay, so let me let me summarize this. You get to Germany where you really don't want to go. Right in February. And you're there, and you discover along the way that there's a whole big black market thing going on within the army. Where within the company, within, within a battalion. Okay, and, and food is being black marketed. Not only food, clothes, boots, gloves. You just see the gloves they hit. I mean. and the, but this is destined for, it, it's, it's army equipment that's right. being black marketed. And, right. you, and you and a group of others blow the whistle. Right. And that comes back, and it's a target on your back. On everybody's back. On everybody's well, back. Well, not really, it's just mine because I signed it. Okay, so you got the, you're, the, you're the signature on the document. Right. So some people are not happy with you. Nobody's happy with me. They knew about it. Right. So you go to Vietnam. No, nah, right. And you get there when? June 6th, D-Day. I remember yeah, every day. Right. I got to her June 14th, Flag Day. That's why I can't forget. What was it like when you first arrived there? You ever see a movie, Platoon? Yes. This is like that. Okay. It's, we went by plane. There was like... I don't know, eight cargo C-130s, and we dropped, we stopped in Hawaii to refuel for six hours, and a whole bunch of guys jumped in the cab, went to Honolulu, and never came back, because they didn't want to go to Nam. So we all got back in the plane, then we went to Guam, and then from Guam we went to Cameron Bay. And it's just like when you get that door drops and that hot air hits you. <laughs> it's... You'd never experienced it before. Right. And you're walking around with just jungle fatigues and nothing. And you're, how old are you, 20? 20. All right. But you got the world by the tail? Were you fearful at that point? No, I wasn't afraid of nothing. You weren't afraid of anything. All right. Tell me how you got into demolition. You're a uh, paratrooper. Okay, this is in Germany. Yeah. Like in Germany, they gave me, uh, sent me to Innsbruck, Austria, for demolition school, because that was my MOS, demolition. And I learned everything I could on Innsbruck. 
Even on the weekends, I studied. I mean, there was nothing you can say that I didn't know. Was, was there a, a, an attraction to demolition? Yeah, oh, I, lo- I loved it. I loved guns, demolitions, explosives, learning new things. I mean, plastics, booby traps, and what to look for and what not to look for. And don't ever go off the beaten path. That's the number one thing, because that's where all the booby traps are at. And to know how to spot them, you know, from, you know, don't always look down, look up and down, and then you advance. So this is an expertise that you had that was known to people, and and that's why you got this role. They're looking to you because you're the demo expert. Because these guys that I went out with a few times, they say, hey, he's got his shit together. You know, and I'd be up there at points looking for, you know, the booby traps or setting up the booby traps, like the Claymores. And we get up an ambush. I had clamors all the way planted around. And they all got cords, so you got to hide them. And you got to click them a couple of times. So once I start clicking them, then everybody opened up. And then Charlie, there was nobody. There was lucky to be anybody was left. And there was a lot. I mean, that's why I got the name Angel of Dust. Because of my boobies right there. my demolition. <laughs> Did you did you have that name back then, or did you get it later on? After? I got it when I left the herd. When they found out, when they found out I was leaving, the infantry, 507th of the Pentagon, they called me over, and they gave me the lighter, and they gave me the CIV badge. I said I can't take this. I'm a combat infantry. Love says, you deserve it. The order's red. You got it. Forget about it. I was proud to get that. Combat engineers see some awful stuff. You're vulnerable. Oh, yeah. You're a target, and you're already a target. Right, but you're you're not allowed to have the CIP because your only infantry gets that. So for me to get it, <laughs> it was like caressing the metal ladder. Tell me about the herd. When I first got there, you're a cherry, and no one really wants to be with you because this and that. So I was there for about three or four days. I was playing horseshoes on a berm. I said, wow, this is the life. I've seen the choppers come by. I mean, it was, a, it was a big base. And then the call came out for me to start going. These are special you know, missions with the infantry. Maybe a week, two weeks at the most. You know, and I was the guy. So you're, you're with the 173rd Brigade. Brigade. It, they are the herd. That's their nickname. And, They're also called Sky Soldiers, too. And why did they have the nickname The Herd? And what was their reputation? Because they were the toughest. They left no survivors behind. I mean, when they came through, they came through like a herd, so they got it. Their real nickname was Sky Soldier. So tell me about the time when you were driving a truck. A Okay, and you're looking down the road, and as a demolition expert, you can recognize when somebody has been monkeying with the terrain. Yeah, I just, I, I told you before, I just got through doing that minesweep early in the morning from Benhat halfway to Docto, and Docto, and they would meet us, and then we go back. And then they asked me to bring the war wagon down and some guys. I said, okay. And I drove down there, and I saw this. 
and I swerved. Alan Swallow was in with me. This is like a little rise in the road. Like yeah, not even a rise. It's flat like this. Okay. But it's just a different color. Okay. And I, I swerved, and I went sideways, and I lasted like maybe 20 seconds, and it turned over. And then it, we everybody got out. No one was hurt. A couple of concussions, and then, and then that lieutenant starts screaming at me. And I told him, go F himself, and this and that. He says, what? And I showed him. I says, I got ammo boxes. I emptied them out, filled them with as much rocks and dirt as I could in there. Got back like maybe 10, 15 feet, and then a first toss. Hit it right in the middle. Boom. And all of a sudden, I says, that's why. He says, well, I guess you got a three-day pass coming. <laughs> all of us. You know, and they medevaced us in to play cool hospital, and we all walked out laughing, which made me feel good because I felt bad that I, I flipped it. But they all knew the reason. You, you avoided what could have been a very nasty disaster. Oh, all of us. You would have all been done. It was a regular plate tank. It was a tank mine. So as a demo guy for the units you're with, you you have to go underground sometimes. You, you ran oh. into a lot of caves, right? I had to be a tunnel wreck three times. First time I didn't volunteer, but they told me I had to go. But I learned from my experience, I threw smoke in there first. Either it would be red, yellow, or white. Why'd you do that? Because the smoke would go through, and it'd come out where all the other exits were. Okay. I mean, I threw two or three in, and not just one. I threw two, and I tossed them far. And then I threw a frag in, just to be safe. And the walls, they didn't cave. And I don't know what they're made of, but they didn't cave. And I went in there with a forty-five and a flashlight like this, not You're, like this. Are you by yourself? Yeah. You got a forty-five and a flashlight? Yeah. And they want to tell me what, what's going on down there. No radio, no nothing. I'm not going to tell them. So as I crawl through, I see all these chambers. I mean, they're like a hospital, ammo. I mean, we, we caught a big cash. You know, twice. Twice we caught it there. And one time, this guy, he, the lieutenant, he was a new guy, second lieutenant out of OCS. He says, all right, you've been down there twice. He says, go on, you go down there. You got the most experience. I said, I'm not going down there. He says, what do you mean I'm not going to? I says, you go down there. He says, why? I says, watch this. And I grabbed a big rock. It must have been about 30 pounds. And I threw it down there and ran. Ba-doom. I said, that's why I ain't going down there. I said, that's why I'm an expert and you're not. It was a booby trap. Right. So whoever went down there, their weight would have put, put and that would have been it. It was a, a false mine. Okay, so describe these underground caverns. That they, you said a hospital? I mean, these are big rooms then? Were, yep. they, were they lit? Electricity, generators, everything. Shelves. I mean, the only thing that was dirty was just dirt walls. And they were about five feet, maybe, maybe five and a half feet, some of them, because they're not big guys anyway. But for guys like me, they're over. You still had a duck. Right. And then they had all these booby traps inside there, just in case they were they going to escape and this and that. Were these places that they had evacuated prior to your arrival? Right. right. Well, while I got there, when I threw the smoke in there, that's when they had DD out. That means they got the hell out of there to another place, to another tunnel, maybe two blocks. These guys are like ants. They make tunnels that are unbelievable. You can't believe it. You, in your own mind, you can't picture somebody doing this when you were down there with your 45 and your flashlight did you ever encounter any live opposition no thank god and the only thing i was scared of 
who was a thing called Mr. Two-Step. It was a white viper, two-foot snake, because if it bit you, after two steps, you were dead. That's the only thing that I was afraid of. Did you ever see that? Not that down there, but I see. I got a picture of him, if you want to see him, out, outside, which you don't see, above. But otherwise, it was, you know, after the, the second time, it didn't bother me no more. Do it, and you got through. If you don't like what you did, it, then you go play. But you can't say no and complain. You got to do it and then complain. And no, no one gave me a hard time because they already knew I was the demo man. Whatever I said, that was law. So let me take it to November 69. You're at a base. The base is attacked. I'm at Manhattan. It's an LZ. Okay. Which means landing zone. Landing zone. Okay. What happened? Uh, I want to say it happened right after Thanksgiving. And we were all asleep about 2 o'clock in the morning and all hell broke in. Motor rounds, RPGs, machine gun fire, and they were all coming. Coming up the hill. I had a 50 caliber. Alan, he was my uh, ammo guy. And when I went out of ammo, you know, or we take turns, because you can't, you can't keep on firing because you'll burn the barrel up. So you gotta do it in burst. And you gotta make sure when you do it. And I think every third or fourth one is a tracer. So you know what you're seeing, and it's at night. And they're making so much noise, and they're carrying ladders, and they're screaming, so. And th that's why we're at Ben Hill, because you always take the height, so we're going downhill. And we had Constantine wire all around, so they couldn't get through. So they, you know, they tried, that wasn't the first time, but they tried and they couldn't do it. They wanted that position. It was like Hamburger Hill, that movie. Only we kept the hill. We kept it. You kept the hill. We made it a landing zone and it was right on the border of Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. We could see the whole Jimmy Trail at night. You can actually see the trucks coming by. We could see the bombers coming over and you could feel it. The whole ground shook like, oh, like, a, like, like an earthquake. You were injured in that attack, were you not? Right. What That's happened? Like a, what happened to you? Shrap metal. I don't know if it was some uh, mortar round, RPG, grenade, or none. I, but I didn't even know. Where did it hit you? In the ankle, right here. Did you lose a lot of blood? Oh. See, they said they gave me four pints. And that's how I got the hepatitis B because at that time they didn't test the blood before I used it for a transfusion. And it remains dormant until huh. something at, at, uh, makes uh, acid. That's what the doctors tell me. How long were you down with hepatitis? Not, not at all. You, were, you continued in action? Right. I didn't even know I had it. I was, this was in the hospital I got it, through the transfusion, through the operation. So you're in Nam for six months? No, five months, 29 days. Close enough. And you saw an awful lot of stuff. You saw a lot of people die. Oh, yes. Too many. So it, when you look at your life at that point in time, you're a young guy and you've seen some... I'm 20 going on 21. seen some awful stuff. And escaped death a couple of times, maybe more. Uh, what did that do to your head? Huh. Or we, we should say that, that you're dealing with PTSD now. Many yeah. years later, 50 I mean, years later. I never killed anybody before. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a good thing that I kill. But 
to war. What are you going to do? I'm watching my buddy. I'm going to get killed. No, I'm not going to do that. Before we go, you're going to go. And that was my job. I mean, when I say save people, I saved villages from the VC. I would set them all up and tell them, and I would teach them and train them so they could defend themselves or call on us if we needed, because we were only maybe a click or two away from the villages, or they'd be right outside. So it made me good. It made me feel good. May, may, may I ask you about your mental condition today, PTSD? Are you willing to talk about that a bit? I'm lucky I laid this one. Every day's a gift. So every day I get up, it's, it's a present. You know what I mean? What I've been through, I got a beautiful wife. We've been together 40 years. We, the home is paid for. Got a big family, even though we have no kids. We got a great dog. Our, we're financially fit, set. I mean, I, said, I just got a thing from Boystown saying, thank you for sending $1,000. Mercy home for boys and girls, $1,000. The honor fight, when I meet these two guys for lunch, I'm going to give them a check for $1,000. My wife, I'm going to give her, I'm going to give her, you know, we ain't using it. These people will put a better use. Greater food supply, sorry, $1,000. Pacific Mission, $1,000. I mean, I got the checkbook and everything. So, and I, I do this because I want to. Plus, I church. But... You wrestle with the demons of the past still, oh, don't you? Oh, yeah. What are you, what are you, what are you doing to help yourself in that regard? Smoke a doobie. Smoke a doobie. And now that it's illegal, I don't worry about nothing. Help I, you. And all the doctors, before they legalized it, they knew. I told them. That's what calms me down. That's what lets me sleep at night. That's what makes me forget about it. That's what helps me remember, remember the good times. But the... The VA psychiatrist that you're seeing, he's helping you out, is he oh, not? Oh, Dr. Zuckel's the best. Well, when you, when you look back at decisions you made long ago, do you have any regrets? Or, not one. Or do you think you made right decisions all Everyone the way down the line? Everyone I made was the right decision. And it saved people or it saved me or it was the right choice to make. I did not. If I did, I wouldn't be here. I'd be in jail or I'd be, you know, locked up or something. I did everything by the book and then some. Were you part of the Welcome Home celebration in 86? Did you go oh, to Oh, are you kidding? I called Cadence for the 173rd. But we all assembled at Navy, Navy Pier, and I was with the herd. I had my cuts bag with my, my book of the herd, and pictures and stuff that I was looking for guides. And then when we started marching, I started calling Cadence. Everywhere we go. There was like a hundred guys and they would follow me. And we, when we walked down with South Street in front of that uh, grandstand, man, did we stick out loud and clear. I can't hear you. You know, auto cadence. Everywhere we go, people, people want to know, know who we are, where we're going. Was that moment, it was one day thing. Oh. Did it, did it help? Big time, big time. When I went back to work, the guys from, I worked for the city. He said, Riz, what happened? I said, what do you mean what happened? You've been here a week and you got no chip on your shoulder. 
So when I chip, I got no chip on my shoulder. He said, yeah, you, get, you had one on you. And I guess it removed it. Because I tell you, it was so great. And then the next day, too. And then going down by the 173rd, they're, they're sweet. It was great. And it made me proud of, of what I did. Then, much later in life, just a few short, a couple of weeks ago, you went on the honor flight. Yep. What did you, What were your expectations before you went on that? It's going to be a long day. Yeah, it was. And I just hope I could make it, you know, walk it all the way through, which I didn't. But I got lucky. I had a great guardian. In fact, you know, I got pictures and all that stuff and a response from my guardian that you won't believe. I mean, I bring the best out in people because I learned from a long time ago, my mother, Two things. I cried because I had no shoes until I saw a man who had no feet. Always there. And then, treat people how you want to be treated. And those are two, two things my mother taught me that really stuck. And that's how I feel my whole life. You know, I was never a gangbanger. I never, not, I mean, I fought the law, and the law won. But so what? I learned from it. I learned not to do it again. Mm-hmm. This message is unbelievable. Okay, so, this, well, this is your guardian. Right. She took these pictures. I didn't even know that, but what she wrote was really nice. May I read it? Yeah. Hi, Riz. It's Rachel Jilson. I hope you landed and made it home safely. I just want to say it was an honor being your guardian today. I had a great day today, and I'm so blessed to have been paired with you today. God bless and thank you. No, read my response. And your response is, it was great time. And I was so lucky to have you for my guardian. I can't thank you enough for your kindness. Wishing you and Grant it's our fiance. have a great life together. Anything I can do for you and Grant, don't hesitate to call or text. I mean, that was really nice of her. So you made a connection with your guardian. And the overall moment, was it, can we say that it helped with wounds that you had? Oh, everything, everything. The war. What, did you go to the wall? Yeah, it was right here. Had you been there before? No. That, this was your first time at the wall? Yep. First time in Washington, D.C. ever. Describe for me what it was like when you walked up to the wall. Tearful. Tearful. What are you sensing? Sorrow. Fifty thousand guys died. For what? None. I came home, got away with losers. I lots of deaths if I call me a loser. Yeah, that's how I felt. I felt the same thing for World War II. And that's the beginning when you first go in. I mean, it's, they got laid out so nuts for all the veterans, not just one. I mean, every veteran is the same. You know, there's nobody better than you know, World War II is not better than Korea. Korea is not better than Nam. Nam's not better than Afghanistan or golf. Or We're all vets. We all do and think the same way. Country, family. We got country and family. That's it. You found names on the wall. Right. Of friends. Right. Who were killed. Right. And you did the etching. Etching, that's a etching. Yeah. Well, can can you tell me when you're doing that, what are you feeling? Tears. My heart's breaking. 
Just So the parade in Chicago in 1986 was healing and helpful for you. A lot of guys. And when you're in D.C. and you're at the wall, was that equally helpful? Uh, Yeah, because I got to see it. I got to give him my response and I know that. So he's still thinking of But a big part of this is being with men who went through what you did, being with them, that bond. Right, right. We all had the same thing in common. Mm-hmm. We wanted to serve our country. That's all we wanted to do. I think I saw you when you walked through Midway when you came home and the people are cheering. Yeah. Was that uplifting for you? Oh, Welcome man. home, Riz. Oh, I felt like the hero. First time in my life. It's got the whole experience has to be the greatest experience of my life. Uplifting. But that moment, you felt pretty proud. Oh, I was proud to be a veteran. Oh, definitely. Most proudest time of my life, other than a parade. And all these people, I mean, not just everybody, they cheer for all of us. They make no difference. You know, that, that, that made me feel, it healed a lot. You know, it took, it, I don't know, I meant that scar that was there. You know, I felt like, wow. <laughs> Finally, after 50 years, I've been thanked. I'm glad of that. Oh, me too. Thanks for sharing some some tough issues. Uh, you live with them. They, never, they will not ever go away, but you make the best of what you can. Every day is a present. Every day is a present. I mean, I, I go, and I was at the VA for 22 years as a volunteer. The last five or six, I was at the DAV. I used to pick up guys. Inglewood, which is a bad neighborhood, all over, all over Chicago land, and all of them. I had 77,000 miles, 2,200 hours, and 304 happy veterans who wanted me to be, pick them up all the time because. And then they, they would they'd give me money. I said, no. You want to give me money? Give it to the warrior, wounded warriors or the USO. I, I, don't, I don't take money. Well, you've kind of demonstrated that you're a giver. You want oh, to give my back. wife even says it. I, I'd rather give to I don't need nothing. There's not a single thing in my world I need but my health. That's it. And peace of mind. Oh, hey, when I pray at night or when my gold chain hits the last, I wish for happiness, health, and peace for all forever. That's my wish. That's it for all. Not just me, for all. You gotta look at the big picture. Right. Welcome home, Riz. Thank you, but thank you, thank you. I love you. Really appreciate it. You're welcome. We hope you found today's Honor, Thank, Inspire episode to be moving and meaningful. If you did, please consider sharing this podcast and make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. The impact Honor Flight Chicago has on the lives of our veterans and their families is made possible by the generosity of our donors. To support our mission, 
to find our veteran application, to volunteer, or simply for more information. Please visit us at honorflightchicago.org.